0: But uh, anyway, hey, I'm glad you're here. How many of you brought your Bible? Will you hold up the Word of God all over the building? And if you'll join me tonight in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19... And I want to read some verses here in just a moment, and then I'll ask you, if you will, to leave your Bibles open and just follow me along here this this evening as we look at this text together. Now, again, please be much in prayer uh, uh, about Sunday morning as we move toward that, and let's really pray for a good day and pray for the power of God and the touch of God to be on our services. This is one of those those, these services that we we planned out for a, a big day, a big turnout. And so uh, I'll be disappointed if it don't happen. So let's pray for it. I think I think now, if I understand right, the weather is supposed to be beautiful Sunday, about 70 degrees, and so that weather won't hurt us. And so hopefully a lot of people will be here and give us an opportunity to tell them about Jesus and try to get them to get saved. So pray much about that. And then the special program on Sunday night, I tell you what, Man, you talk about convicting, and I hope you'll be here for that and then bring somebody with you. Revelation chapter 19. If you're there, would you say amen? amen. All right, let's have prayer, and we're going to get started here tonight. Let's pray. Father, bless your word, I ask you tonight. And, the Lord, as I try to talk about this great subject found in the Word of God, I pray you'll touch it and help me tonight and speak to us, and may we learn something from the Bible, from the Word of God, that we can share with somebody else and help them along the journey of life or maybe even help them to get saved. And so God, teach us something. Show us something from the Word of God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, for the last, I don't know, several months now, we've been involved in a series of messages uh, that I've entitled Understanding the Bible in 20 Cs. And what I've attempted to do, throughout this whole series is to break the whole Bible down into only 20 words. Now, of course, that's a big job considering that there are over 788,000 words in the Bible. And that's hard to do, but I think as you follow me through this that you understand that we could place the Bible under 20 different headings at least, uh, and all of which I have started with the letter C. Now, at 734, I want to do this in four minutes. but let's, And I think if I've got them counted right, this is number 18. So y'all help me now. Let's get this out of the way real fast, and let's go over these previous 17 Cs. All right. Now, since this over here is the week section, I'm going to start over here because I think everybody knows the first C, and that is the word? After creation, we have the word? Corruption, right. After corruption, we have the word? Catastrophe. After the catastrophe, we have the word? Confusion. Now we're back over here to the word? Choosing, right. And then we're right here at the next word, the word? What? Confinement. All right, after the word confinement? After the word camping, we have the word? Conquering, very good. Boy, we're doing good. All right. Now, after conquering, we've got the crowning. Good. Boy, I'm impressed by y'all. All All right. After crowning, we've got the word? Captivity. captivity. Good. After the captivity, we've got the word? All right. Then we end the Old Testament now. So we're through through 39 books of the Old Testament with those words. Now we begin in the New Testament with the first word, the word? Christ. 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 And then after Christ, we have the word? Cross. After cross, by the way, thank God for the cross. After the word cross, we have the word comforter, the coming of the Holy Spirit. After the word comforter, we have the word church. That's the reason the Holy Spirit came into the world. Day of Pentecost, the church. After the church, we have the word coming. And that, where's that? Oh yeah, we got one more. All right, back over here, and after the coming comes the. The calamity, all right, so we're through 17 words and we did that in three minutes. So we're through 17 words to understanding the Bible, the word calamity. The 17th word that we went over last time uh, was the word calamity. We know that after the church is removed and Christ comes again in the clouds, the church is going to be removed and after the church is removed, there's going to come a time of great calamity upon the earth. Now, once again, we believe the Lord Jesus will come before the calamity begins or if I could use the Bible phrase, the tribulation begins. We don't think that God has saved us to turn around and judge us in the tribulation period, but we believe the Lord comes before the calamity begins. Now, the calamity period, the time of tribulation on the earth, is going to be marked by great apostasy and great anarchy. Now, I've got to tell you, we're already seeing that in the days that we're living in. We're seeing the apostasy, the falling away from the truth, the turning away from the truth, and we're even seeing, God, God help us, in America, in the streets of America, we're even seeing the anarchy that's taking place in our, in our country today. But ladies and gentlemen, during the time of the calamity, the time of the tribulation period, the anarchy and the, and the apostasy is going to be on steroids and be ramped up people are going to turn away from the truth. And the Bible said during that time of calamity, that tribulation period, that the Bible said that men will believe a lie that they all might be damned. In fact, don't let this shock you, but here's what the Bible said. For this cause God shall send them strong delusion. Can you imagine that? Because they turned away from the truth, God will allow man to believe a lie. So it's going to be marked by a time of great apostasy, falling away, turning away from the truth, and because of that, there'll be a great time of anarchy on the earth as well. In fact, if you'll do this, if you'll go through the book of the Revelation, you'll find out that during that seven-year tribulation period that one out of every two people are going to die, and a third part of the earth is going to be burnt and scorched by fire. That's during this time of calamity. But now that leads us now to the 18th C word to understand the Bible because after the calamity is over, when the tribulation period is done, the next C word is going to be the word coronation because it is that point after the calamity the Lord Jesus is going to come back from heaven to the earth. Now let me tell you, there's a difference now I guess, you know, we refer to it as one second coming, and that's okay. But we have to understand that the second coming of Jesus is actually broken up, I guess we could say, into a part A and a part B. The part A part is when he comes in the clouds, and those of us that are saved leave the earth and rise to meet him in the air. And then seven years later, and by the way, nobody knows when the rapture is going to take place. Nobody knows. But can I tell you this? Everybody will know when the revelation is going to take place, when Jesus comes back in part B of the second coming of Christ because it's going to be seven years after, part A. And this time, unlike the first time when he comes in the clouds and we go to meet him, the next time he comes, he comes back from the clouds to the earth and we come back with him. And that is going to be the hour or the time of coronation. It'll be the time when Jesus is finally crowned and recognized for who he really is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, we read about this coronation part of our Bible in our text tonight, so let me ask you to join me now in chapter 19 and verse number 11. And let's just read the rest of the chapter because it has to deal with the coronation, the crowning of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven open. Now, back in chapter 4, John said this, After this I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven. So there we got heavens opening up the first time to let us in. But it's going to open up the second time to let us out. Now, look again at verse 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Now, wait a minute. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know back in chapter 6, to start this calamity period, we have a rider on a white horse, and he has a bow. But he doesn't have any arrows, signifying he's coming in peace. Now, we understand that the devil is a counterfeit and a copycat. He always tries to mimic what God is doing. We have a, we have a, 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 we have a trinity. Satan has a trinity. Uh, you know, we have a Christ. Satan has an antichrist. He's a copycat. He has no original faults, there's nothing new with him because all he can do is to copy. The, uh, the uh, uh, copy the things of God in, in a counterfeit manner. So back in chapter 6, there's a rider on the white horse, and that's the Antichrist. Now we come to the true Christ, chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Now watch this. And he that sat upon him. Now you've got to know this is Jesus because the Bible said that he's called faithful and true. Amen. He is faithful, isn't he? Faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unright. He's true. He has truth personified. Jesus is true. And then it says this, and in righteousness and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head, you might want to circle this part, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood. And boy, this is important. And his name is called the Word of God. Now we know who that is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word, John 1, 14, dwelt among us. Who's the Word? Jesus is the Word. First John 5, 7, there are three that by record in heaven, the Father, the Word... And the Holy Ghost. And these three are, I mean, Jesus is referred to oftentimes as the Word. By the way, can I say this? Anytime you spend time in the Word, you're spending time with the Word. That's why we ought to stay in our Bible, because any time you spend in your Bible is time spent with Jesus, because Jesus is the Word. That's why we ought to treat this book very precious and hold it to be very sacred. You know why? It's Jesus. He's the Word. Amen. He's the Word incarnate. You and I have the Word inspired right here. The Bible said in verse 13, He is called the Word of God. Now, verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Right down out beside of that, you and me. Verse 15, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that it should, uh, with it he should smite the nations, he should rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hey, that's Jesus, friend. Look at verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bonds, both small and great. And I saw the beast right down beside of verse 19, battle of Armageddon. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. That's right there in the space of what? Twenty, twenty-five words is the whole battle of Armageddon. Verse 20, the beast was taken. With him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with the, which he had deceived them and had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the, a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, and, and which sword proceeded out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. The coronation part of our Bible. Now, if you want to get your prayer sheet out, at 744. I want to give you three truths that we find from this text about the coronation, the coronation part of our Bible. First of all, the coronation begins, it commences with the king's return. The king's return. Now, I told you a few moments ago, while the time of great calamity is going on in the earth, on the earth, the church, those of us that are saved, are in heaven with the Lord Jesus. Now, prior to our text in Revelation 19, we know that three things has already taken place. If you'll get right on these three things, you'll be right about the future of the church. So number one, we know prior to the return of Christ in verse 11, number one, we know, number one, the rapture has already taken place. We know that. We know the rapture has already taken place. Number two, we know the judgment seat of Christ has already taken place. And prior to verse 11 of chapter 19, we know the marriage supper of the Lamb has already taken place. So write those three things down. Rapture, uh, we have the rapture, we have the judgment seat, and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you remember those three things in that order, then you'll be right to understand the future of the church. Now, the first thing that takes place is the rapture. The rapture takes place in Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 1. Now, I challenge you. I challenge you. At the end of chapter 3, the church of Laodicea, the last stage the church is going through, the cold, lukewarm, lackadaisical, have-need-of-nothing attitude that's put Jesus on the outside of the church. By and large, predominantly, we're living in the Laodicean church age. That age ends with the rapture. Chapter 4, verse 1, after this, I looked, behold, a door was open in heaven, and the first voice I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet, talking with me, which said, Come up hither. I used to think that's what the Lord was going to say when he come back, but I've changed my mind now. I don't think he's going to say, Come up hither. I think he's going to say, Attention, Walmart shoppers. Because we all go to Walmart, don't we? If it wasn't for Walmart, the Andy Griffith program, I don't know what the Independent Baptists would do because we watch Andy Griffith, and if we're going to go anywhere, it's to Walmart. (laughs) So he's going to say, come back and say, Attention, Walmart, shopper, and we're going to be out of here. That's the rapture. Right after the rapture comes the judgment seat of Christ. Now, you've got to remember, in the Bible, the church is viewed as three things. It's a body, it's a building, and it's a bride. All right, It's a body because it can never get diseased. It's a building because it can never be destroyed. And it's a bride because it can never be divorced. Aren't you glad the Lord will never look at his bride, the church, and say, I want a divorce? Never will do that. But now you've got to understand, according to verse 7, look at our text, 19 verse 7, "...let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come." So we understand that when we leave this earth, we're heading to a marriage in the sky. There's going to be the, uh, the, the, ju- the rapture, but then the judgment seat. But now, wait a minute. Before this marriage can take place, the bride is going to have to be made ready because you and I know in, in our world today that the church is not a beautiful bride. You know, I've, I've, a, I've done plenty of weddings in my lifetime, plenty of them. Last year, I, can't re- I don't remember how many I had last year, a bunch of them. Now, can I tell you something? I have never, in all the weddings I've ever done, I've never seen an ugly bride. But I've got to tell you now, there's a couple of times they come close. <laughs> it's none of those recently. None of those in the last 20 years. I do remember one I did down at the old church. <laughs> this is the only time anybody's ever shouted at, the, at a wedding that I did. So the bride came in. And the groom was standing back behind me, and I said, "Okay, let's all rise." And I stepped forward, let's everybody rise. Everybody stood up, and when the groom saw the bride coming in, he started shouting. I saw the same thing he did. I didn't see a whole lot to shout about, but he liked it. And he is the one getting married. I didn't say anything. I will tell you this: about scared me to death. You wait. You get in a wedding, let somebody back behind you start shouting. See if it don't scare you to death. But let me tell you something. The bride is not at all you know, ready for the marriage yet because the bride's got to get cleaned up first. The the bride has got to be made beautiful to be married to, to to the groom. There's so many things right now that make the bride unpresentable to the groom. Things that we do make us unpresentable. Things that we don't do make us unpresentable. But at the judgment seat, all that, It's going to get taken care of. God's going to get all the spots out of the wedding garment. God's going to get out his heavenly iron at the judgment seat and get all the wrinkles out of the garment. You've never seen a bride, and I never have neither, I've never seen a bride walk down the aisle with a pizza stain on a wedding dress. I mean, that bride wants to look the best that she can possibly look for that, for that hour. She ain't going to walk in here with a big ketchup mustard stain on her. I mean, good night, she'll call the wedding off before that happens. So the bride, the church, is going to have to get the spots taken out. The bride, the church, is going to have to get all the wrinkles out of the garment. And brother, I'm telling you, all of that's going to take place at the judgment seat of Christ because the Bible said at the judgment seat, God is going to make us presentable. God's going to put on us a gown of glory. God is going to put on our finger a ring of redemption and God is going to put on our heads the veil of victory. God's going to do all that at the judgment seat of Christ and then a wedding's going to take place. Now, this is not your usual wedding because, you know, in our weddings, you know, the center of attention at our weddings is always the bride. Again, I've done a lot of marriage. But I, we've walked in several times up here on this platform. Me and the groom and the best man. Nobody's ever stood up for us when we walked in. Nobody. I've never heard anybody go up to a groom before and say, You look breathtaking. <laughs> I, I've never read in the paper before anybody talked about what the groom had on. It's all about the bride. But now, not this wedding. No, sir. It's not about the bride, it's about the groom. It's all about Jesus. At this wedding that we're heading for as a church, they ain't playing, here comes the bride, it's here comes the groom because it's all about him. And we're going to celebrate the wedding with this great big meal called the Marriage Supper in the Sky. I've said this before, but the only reason some Baptists are going to heaven is because we're going to eat. We like to eat, don't we? So there's going to be a great big wedding supper in the sky. I heard about this one man. By the way, it's going to be wonderful, but I heard about this one man, and he met this wonderful lady. They got married, stayed married for 15 years, and the Lord took her home. He got married a second time, met another wonderful lady. They were married for 10 years, and the Lord took her home. He met another mari- uh, woman and was married for seven years, and this time he said, anytime the Lord wants to take her home, I'm ready. <laughs> you hear about that old boy? Him and his wife was going into the bank, and uh, when they was going in, there was a couple of other men walking in with them, and this robber was coming out. He had on a mask and a gun. He was carrying a sack of money. He looked at those men there standing there, and he said, Do you see me rob this bank? That man said, Yes, sir. He just took his gun and shot him dead. He looked at the other guy and said, Do you see me rob this bank? He said, Yes, sir. He took his gun and shot him dead. He looked at that man and his wife standing there and looked at that guy and said, you see me rob this bank? He said, No, but my wife did. That ain't what this is going to be about. The Lord's not looking to get rid of us. But let me say it like this. At the rapture, we're going to get caught up. At the judgment seat, we're going to get cleaned up. And at the marriage supper, we're going to get cheered up. And the king's coming. Yes, sir. I am told that when Michael Jackson died, I'm told that right after, Oh, when he died, they had this big funeral. And when they rolled his body into the church, the choir broke out into the chorus of the king is coming. Well, I'm going to tell you something, friend. We've seen the last of him. But our king, we've not seen the last of him. He is coming again. The Bible said in verse 11, verse 12, that he's coming back again. And the whole coronation period begins with the coming of the king. And right, right after the marriage supper, what's going to happen is we're going to all head out to the stables and get on horses in our wedding garments. Can you imagine a bride riding into a wedding on a horse? Yeah, some of y'all cowboys probably could like the picture of that in your mind. But that's the way it's going to be. Right after the marriage supper, we're going out to the stables and get on the horses, and here we come with Jesus. He's coming back again. The king's return. I want to point out one more thing before we leave this. Look at verse 12. The Bible simply says, on his head were many crowns. Where in the world did he get all them crowns? I'll tell you where I think he got them, at the judgment seat. Those of us who are faithful to God in this period of grace, when we stand before God and if we have anything left over after the fires, the wood, the silver, the, uh, the, uh, the wood, the hay, and the stubble going to all puff and go away, but the silver and the gold and the precious stones and jewels will remain and we'll take those crowns, if we have any, and we'll cast them at the feet of Jesus And I'm not sure, maybe I'm misreading this, but Jesus is probably going to reach down and put every one of them crowns on his head, and when he comes back, he's going to be crowned with many crowns. Boy, I'd like to be able to say, hey, one of them is mine. I gave it to him. I loved him so much, served him so faithfully. I I wanted to give him that one right there. Amen. The judgment seat of Christ. The king's return. How many of y'all are with me now? So number one, we got the king's return. Next, Next, we move to a second part of this coronation. Not only the king's return, but I want you to see, secondly, the nation's spurn. The nation's spurn. Now notice, if you will, in verse 15. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp, sharp, a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nation. Now the first thing that happens, when the king comes back, a war is going to break out. I mean, you'd think the world would be saying, Jesus, we love you. Welcome. No, sir. The Bible said that when he comes back that there is going to be a war that breaks out. Now, we read about that war in verse 19 and following. But we know this as the Battle of Armageddon. Now, it's not called back here. But look at this. Back in chapter 16, it is. Look at chapter 16, verse 16. He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now the word Armageddon or Mount of Megiddo simply means this, the Mount of Slaughter, the Mount of Slaughter. It is a reference to a valley that's about 20 miles long, 14 miles wide, and it begins just east of what I was preaching about Sunday night on top of Mount Carmel. It runs through the middle of the Holy Land to the land of Edom. And the one thing this Megiddo, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, or Megiddo is is famous for is battles. I mean, there's always been wars fought there. For instance, it was Barak who met and defeated the Canaanites in the Valley of Megiddo. It was uh, Gideon that fought. Remember Gideon and they broke the pitchers and they blew the horns and shouted, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And it was there that the great slaughter of the Midianites took place. It was also there, same area, where Saul was killed by the Philistines on top of Mount Geboa. It was there that King Josiah, the boy king, reigned at eight years old. It was there that he was defeated and killed by the Egyptians. This This valley is known for one thing. It's always been a valley of battles. One day I'm told that Napoleon stood on the hill of Megiddo and called it the world's greatest battlefield. And the name Armageddon comes from a Hebrew word that means to cut off. And that's exactly what God's going to do at the the battle of Armageddon. God is going to cut off that which is unrighteous, unholy, and ungodly. So Jesus is going to come back from heaven on a white horse. Look behind him there's thousands and millions of other white horses coming back with him and all of a sudden, a battle breaks out. Now watch this. There's a number of number of speculations why all the armies of the earth are gathered there at this point. Some people think that right at the end of the, the tribulation period that there's going to be a revolt against the Antichrist's leadership and his rulership. His plans at the end of the tribulation period are, are going to begin to unravel. His world dominance is going to begin to wane. And the kings of the east, just right over there where Brother, brother Roger was last week or so, the kings of the east, Japan, China, uh, North Korea, uh, Pakistan, those kings are going to gather their armies and they're going to use the dried-up riverbed of Euphrates River and come down from the east into the holy lands, and the purpose for their coming is to make war against the uh, the Antichrist. Their armies number, according to chapter 16, their armies number two million strong. That's a big army. And they're going to come down, and the Antichrist maneuvers his forces to combat the onslaught and the coming of these kings of the east that have rebelled against his authority. And all of a sudden, the heavens open up and the Lord appears. And the armies of heaven follow him from heaven. And those nations that have gathered there together to make war with each other then turn their artillery toward the one sitting upon the white horse and the armies that are following him as maybe known as the invaders from outer space. That's one opinion. There are other opinions that maybe think this, that the Antichrist has gathered all the armies of the world together and maneuvered them together to make war against the little nation of Israel to battle Jerusalem. We remember that right at the start of the tribulation period, the Antichrist, according to Daniel, signs a peace treaty. He confirms the covenant with many, the nation of Israel, for one week, a heptad, a seven-year period. So we know that the temple has to be rebuilt and he signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. But we also know that right in the middle of the point of the tribulation period, the Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation. He sets himself up to be the the, the God, God and demands the nation of Israel and others to worship him, at which time there's going to be a revolt by the nation of Israel. So he, like Hitler before, like Hammond before, like Pharaoh before, like Nebuchadnezzar before, is trying to annihilate and exterminate the earth of the people of God. He's gathered his armies together to totally rid once and for all the Jew from the face of the earth. And about that time, heaven opens up. And here comes one on a white horse. And he's followed by the armies in heaven. Well, I don't know why they get there, but the main thing is they gather there. And the king returns and the nations spurn. But now, here's my favorite part. So the king returns, the nations spurn. But my third point is this. The enemies burn. That's right. Notice what happens. So here they are. And the Bible said, by the way, the king is so confident that he's going to win this battle that before the battle even starts, he starts calling the fowls of the heaven, the vultures, and the crows, and the eagles, and all of those. I want to impress y'all with a word now. Carnivorous birds. I can tell you impressed. All of them birds that sit on the side of the road and eat dead possums is what I'm trying to say. He's going to summon them. Y'all come here. I'm about to feed y'all a supper like you ain't never had before. (laughs) <laughs> and there is going to be a war fought. Now, this battle begins. And, and here's, here's, here's a little bit what's unusual about that. You and I are going to have a front row seat for the whole thing. <laughs> that's exactly right. We're going to have a front row seat to what's going to be the greatest battle that's ever been fought. This battle's going to make D-Day look like a church picnic. There's going to be no surrender. There'll be no prisoners, prisoners taken. There'll be no holds barred. This will be un- unlike any other battle that has ever been fought. The only battle that has ever been fought in history, watch this now, where the general does all the fighting. Now normally in our day, when battles break out, the general will set off on the hill and watch the soldiers do all the fighting. But in this battle, the soldiers, you and me, are going to sit on our horses and watch watch the general do all the fighting. He is the one who is going to do all the fighting. You know why? Because he don't need nobody to help him. Because he is the almighty God. He don't even need a conventional weapon. It's really going to be comical how all this plays out. Because here are all these armies of the earth. They've got all their guns and their planes and their tanks and their jets and their missiles and their bombs and their lasers and everything else they have in their arsenal. And our, our Savior, our King, is going to have one thing, one weapon, and that is the sword of of his word. Now what in the world does the sword of the word of God, how can that sword overcome the hydrogen, the atomic, the Boab bombs, the 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 bomb busters, the bunker buster bombs that we have and this what in the world, but think about that, the God who spoke the world into existence are going to speak these armies into oblivion. Can I say it like this? It's going to be a war won by word. Think about that. I mean a war that is going to be won by a word. Jesus is just going to speak the word. By the way, that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, he spoke a word one time and a fig tree just withered away. He, he spoke a word one time and the waves and the wind laid down at his feet like whipped puppies. He spoke a word just one time and an entire legion of demons and they fled like rats off a seeking ship. Oh, yeah, just a word and Jesus is going to win the battle. Just a word. Can I tell you this? We're near Easter, so I think you'll get this. Give me time and I'll be done with this. I think we got a preview of what the Battle of Armageddon is going to be like during our celebration of Easter. Follow me. Follow me. See if you don't agree with this. I'm going to tell you what this battle is going to be like by telling you what's already taken place. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there and he's praying. And he's praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and about the time that he gets through praying, here comes Judas. Now, we know Judas is a picture of the devil. Judas is the only man in the Bible that was not only demon-possessed, he was devil-possessed. I mean, he was Satan incarnate. The devil got in that old boy. And Judas comes out, so he's a picture of the Antichrist. And then he brings out the armies of Rome with him. Remember all those soldiers? Peter jerked out his sword and took a swing at one, and he ducked. And he hit his ear and chopped it off. Jesus reached down, picked that. Somebody said, you missed him, Peter. He said, turn your head. His ear's laying on the ground. Jesus reached down and puts it back on. So the armies represent the armies of our text. So they come out there to take Jesus. And I like this because the Bible said that Jesus didn't run from them he went to meet them. Boy, we serve a brave Savior, friend. Hey, he wasn't hiding in that garden. He wasn't hid out behind the tree. When they started coming, the Bible said, and he rose up to meet them. Oh, they thought they was coming to take him. No, sir, he's coming to take them. Let me read it to you. Watch this now. Let me read to you. John chapter 18, verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all of these things that should come upon him, went forth. There he goes went forth to meet them, and he said this to them. He said unto them, Whom seek ye? All right, so here's here's the the devil, here's the armies. It's a preview of the battle of Armageddon. Jesus goes to meet them and said, Who y'all looking for? And the next verse said this. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now watch this. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And when he said that, Judas also which betrayed him stood with him. Notice now, next verse. And as soon then as he said unto them, I am he, what happened to them? They went backward and fell to the ground. Just a word. I mean, we doesn't got a preview of this. We don't know how it's going to play out. Here comes the devil, here comes the enemies, here comes the armies of the, wor- of the world. And man, Jesus is going to say, I am he. And when he says that, poof, into oblivion. They are vaporized in a moment. Just one word, amen. Now watch this and we're done. It amazes me to think about how that God has chosen the land of Israel for two great sacrifices. That's right. You see, there in the land of Israel, God gave us a place called Calvary, a place of sacrifice. And there in the land of Israel, God gave us Megiddo, a place of sacrifice. Two great feasts are instituted from these two great places of sacrifice. Why? From Calvary, we have the Lord's Supper. We just did that last Sunday night. And we partook of the Lord's Supper together, commemorating the great sacrifice at Calvary. But in our text, we read of another great feast that God is going to institute because when this battle is over, there's going to be dead people upon dead people. And he says to the fish and the, uh, or to the fowls of the air, y'all, come on. I got something for you to eat, and it ain't a McDonald's burger. And you can see them old vultures there. Mm, there's a big old fat captain. over there. Mm, mm, mm. I think I'll have a good eyeball right here. Eat up, boys. I say, man, look at there. There's a gallbladder laying out there. Man, always wanted to take a gallbladder. And then he'll start feasting on that. Yes, sir. From the sacrifice, we read, God instituted a feast for the fowls of the air to come and feast upon the dead carcass of those. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because they rejected the sacrifice that God made at Calvary. They'll face the supper that God has for the fowls at Megiddo. Amen. Aren't you glad you're saved? I'm glad that I accept it. You remember that Luke 14 text where he says, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to save them which have been come, for all things are now ready. I'm so glad Jesus passed by my way one day. He said, Hey, I got a feast for you. It's called the Feast of Salvation. Hey, listen, salvation's not a funeral. It's a feast. Hey, I got, I got some bowls of blessing and some juices of joy and some, and some breads of blessings and what am I trying to say here? Some dishes of, dishes of delights and, and over here are some spoons of sufficient grace and, and here's some goblets. I, I mean, I got all this for you. Come over here. I'm so glad I come because I ate at that feast. I won't be eating at this feast. <laughs> yes, sir, the enemies are going to burn. And I ain't rejoicing about that, but I'll tell you what, I sure am glad the old beast. And the fa- look at verse 20. The beast, the false prophet, wrought miracles before them, which he had deceived them These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And then we go over to chapter 20 and find out even the devil himself is put into the uh, bottomless pit and uh, be shut up for a thousand glorious years known in the Bible as the millennial reign of Christ. The enemy's going to burn. Well, we gotta go, don't we? But I tell you what, that's good news, ain't it? The devil's loose, the devil's lost, the devil's a liar, the devil's limited, and the devil's a loser. I don't want to follow no loser. Amen. I'm glad to be saved. Let's pray.